Hello and welcome to the fourth episode of Left on Red, thought-provoking commentary by Trevor Cooper. I am your host, Trevor Cooper, recording from the San Francisco Bay Area in California. Before we get into the episode, I would like to endorse Rosewood, a 1997 cult classic film produced by the late and the great John Singleton. It's based on a true story about a small Florida town that was burned to the ground because of a lie in the early 20th century. Some Rosewood residents escaped and survived the devastation because of the bravery and compassion of a small group of Good Samaritans. This film honors those who demonstrated humanity during one of the most hate-filled periods in American history. These are the things I want you to teach and preach. If you have leaders there who teach otherwise, who refuse the solid words of our master Jesus and this godly instruction, tag them for what they are, ignorant windbags who infect the air with germs of envy, controversy, bad-mouthing, suspicious rumors. Eventually, there's an epidemic of backstabbing, and truth is but a distant memory. They think religion is a way to make a fast buck. A devout life does bring wealth, but it's the rich simplicity of being yourself before God since we entered the world penniless and will leave it penniless, if we have bread on the table and shoes on our feet, that's enough. But if it's only money these leaders are after, they'll self-destruct in no time. Lust for money brings trouble and nothing but trouble. Going down that path, some lose their footing in the faith completely and live to regret it bitterly ever after. 1 Timothy 6, 2-10 message. Beginning with the Reconstruction era, lynchings were systematically used to enforce white supremacy and to intimidate black people through racial terrorism. Well into the 20th century, lynchings were strongly associated with the rapidly shifting economic realities of the post-bellum South. The depressed price of cotton, inflation of American currency, and economic pressure correlate to the increased frequency of lynchings in the United States. According to the Equal Justice Initiative's Lynching in America report, quote, during the period between the Civil War in World War II, thousands of African Americans were lynched in the United States. Lynchings were violent and public acts of torture that traumatized black people throughout the country and were largely tolerated by state and federal officials. These lynchings were terrorism. Terror lynchings peaked between 1880 and 1940 and claimed the lives of African-American men, women, and children who were forced to endure the fear 
humiliation and barbarity of this widespread phenomenon unaided. End quote. The 14th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, adopted in 1868, declared that all born in the United States were citizens, and the 15th Amendment, ratified in 1870, stated that all citizens could vote regardless, quote, of race, color, or previous condition of servitude, end quote. Southern whites disagreed with these amendments. Some considered the Reconstruction Amendment self-destructive, but they were unable to maintain white supremacy in the face of the federal document. Some white men blamed the black freedmen for their new economic struggles and for the end of their social and political privilege. During the Reconstruction period from 1863 through 1877, interracial coalitions of men working towards civil rights and equality in the South and in frontier states were routinely attacked and sometimes lynched. As a result of this retaliatory and government-sanctioned violence, black voting was suppressed and the violence was justified by state and local voting poll taxes and literacy tests. An entire race of people who were historically prevented from accumulating wealth and autonomy through property ownership and were prevented from learning how to read and write for hundreds of years were now required to pay a poll tax and or demonstrate the ability to read and write before being able to vote and would face loss of jobs, harassment, and receive death threats for even talking about voting, let alone showing up at the polls. These voting requirements were also enforced on similarly situated poor white men and white women from 1920 onward. But many white men were allowed to vote without paying the poll tax through grandfather clauses, which allowed any adult white male whose father or grandfather had voted in a specific year prior to the abolition of slavery. By 1876, black political momentum had been eliminated and white men enjoyed unrestricted control over state legislatures. The following year, in 1877, federal troops were removed from the South under a national compromise. For the next 20 years, many states disenfranchised black people in state constitutional amendments and statutes designed to secure the unfettered will of an all-white electorate by blocking black voter registration across the South. Black codes, for example, included annual labor contracts that required black people to be employed by white people or otherwise be convicted for vagrancy. Jim Crow segregation laws and customs relegated black people to second-class citizenship status permanently. During this period that spanned from the late 1800s into the early 1900s, lynchings peaked in the South. Across the South and beyond, since black people were locked into a permanent undercaste, black people did not have robust civil rights protections 
and could not legitimately exert contract or property rights against white people without violent retaliation. Therefore, many black men and women remained subservient to white people as servants and sharecroppers, which are tenant farm workers who live and work on farms owned by white landowners in exchange for a portion of their harvest. These agreements were often verbal and black people were often charged for their housing, supplies, and other incidentals in order to keep black farmers indebted in a vicious cycle of poverty and dependence on the white landowning family. When it was time for white landowners to settle suspect, fraudulent, or even inaccurate account balances with black sharecroppers, any black man or woman disputing the balance or being defiant could be lynched by white men without any fear of prosecution or legal recourse for the surviving family members. Beyond sharecropping, starting in the 1860s, black people were allowed to attend segregated schools and colleges. Despite being underfunded, these schools contributed to higher literacy rates, more opportunity for social mobility, social class stratification among black people, and were prime real estate for violent local retribution in response to black prosperity and resilience. Oftentimes, incidents of violence against black people were based on accusations of sexual assault by black men against white women or a black man murdering a white person. Perhaps even a black person being disrespectful to a white person. These accusations alone could result in lynchings, massacres, and mayhem. These claims of black violence against white people were often used as pretext to intentionally destroy entire neighborhoods and communities, whether true or not, in order to prevent economic growth and competition. Here is a snapshot of some of America's recorded race riots during the Jim Crow segregation era. Thibodeau Massacre, Louisiana, 1887. Phoenix Election Riot, Greenwood County, South Carolina, 1898. Wilmington Insurrection of 1898, Wilmington, North Carolina. Professor Laura F. Edwards wrote in the book, Democracy Betrayed, quote, what happened in Wilmington became an affirmation of white supremacy, not just in that one city, but in the South and in the nation as a whole, end quote. The events in Wilmington signaled that quote-unquote whiteness eclipsed black American citizenship, individual rights, and equal protection under the law guaranteed by the 14th Amendment. Robert Charles Riots, New Orleans, 1900. Atlanta Race Riot, 1906. Johnson Jeffries Riots, 1910. This was after black boxer Jack Johnson defeated former heavyweight champion and white boxer James Jeffries, who was called the Great White Hope, in what was called the fight of the century. Some white people felt incensed and humiliated in response to the celebrating black people, black joy, and began attacking black people across the country. Forsyth County Race Conflict, Georgia, 1917. East St. Louis Riots, 1917. This was a labor and race-related massacre 
which left 250 black people dead and 6,000 homeless after their homes were vandalized and burned to the ground. Red Summer of 1919. This was when white supremacist terrorism and racial attacks took place in more than three dozen cities across the United States. Okoe Massacre, 1920. This was a white mob attack on African-American residents in northern Okoe, which is in Orange County, Florida, on Election Day. Most of the African-American-owned buildings and residences in northern Okoe were burned to the ground. Other African-Americans living in southern Okoe were later killed or driven out with threats of more violence. Okoe essentially became an all-white town after that. Tulsa Race Massacre. This was during Memorial Day weekend, 1921, when mobs of white residents, many of them armed on their own or given weapons by city officials and were given the power of law enforcement to attack black residents and businesses in the city's Greenwood District. This attack, carried out on the ground and from private aircraft, destroyed more than 35 square blocks of the Greenwood District, at that time the wealthiest black community in the United States, known as Black Wall Street. More than 800 people were admitted to hospitals, and as many as 6,000 displaced black residents were interned at large facilities. In 2001, a state commission gave estimates that up to 300 people died from this government-sanctioned economic takedown. Perry Race Riot, Perry, Florida, 1922. A black man, Charles Wright, was accused of raping a white woman. Wright confessed to the crime after being tortured. A white vigilante mob numbering in the thousands seized Wright from the local sheriff and burned him alive and then burned the town's black school, church, and several residences. Rosewood Massacre, Rosewood, Florida, 1923. This town was a quiet, self-sufficient, majority black community along the railroad. Things escalated when white men from several nearby towns lynched a black man because of accusations that a white woman had been assaulted by a black transient man, a drifter. Hundreds of white people began hunting black people through the countryside and also burned every black-owned structure in Rosewood. No arrests were ever made. Surviving Rosewood residents were driven to the swamps until they were rescued out of the area by car and train. No one was ever compensated for this total loss and no one ever moved back to this now extinct town. Here are the lyrics to a song made popular by Billie Holiday called Strange Fruit. Southern trees bearing strange fruit, blood on the leaves and blood at the roots. Black bodies swinging in the southern breeze, strange fruit hanging from the poplar trees. Pastoral scene of the gallant south them big bulging eyes and the twisted mouth. Scent of magnolia, clean and fresh, then the sudden smell of burning flesh. Here is a fruit, 
for the crows to pluck, for the rain to gather, for the wind to suck, for the sun to rot, for the leaves to drop. Here is strange and bitter crop. I'd like to take a few moments to talk about my paternal great-grandfather, Jim Smith, who was born in 1878, the son of a former slave, born at the end of the Reconstruction era. He could read and write, and so could his wife, as recorded in the 1910 census. He also allowed his children to attend school, one of which was my grandmother. My father tells me, out of 21 births, 16 of the children his wife Ella bore died in childhood due to untreated bacterias and viruses such as typhoid fever and dysentery due to inadequate access to medical care. Can you imagine the pain and heartache of so much death? Jim Smith was determined to leave a legacy for our family despite the gruesome and horrifying American realities happening around him at the local, state, regional, and national levels. He was able to send two of his four daughters to college, one being my grandmother, the youngest, and saw to it that all four of his daughters were married. He progressed from being a sharecropper to owning his own farm and eventually purchasing 100 acres of farmland that he distributed equally to his four daughters which still remain in the family to this day. As a kid, I remember visiting the Smith residence, which was still standing in the late 1980s on the family farm. By the time I came along, the family house was no longer habitable, but my 95-year-old great-aunt tells me the house was state-of-the-art in its day. It had amenities such as vaulted ceilings, parquet wooden floors, a telephone, electricity, antique Victorian-style furniture, and an open kitchen and prep area. The house was flanked by fruit trees, lush gardens, and orchards. As a successful entrepreneur, in addition to farming his own land, my great-grandfather sold molasses and other handcrafted food items to the local community and farmer's market. Today I realize and I honor the sacrifice and the bravery of this great man in my bloodline. My great-grandfather Jim defied insurmountable, unbeatable odds to move his family out of poverty before his death in 1949 at the age of 71. I stand on his shoulders. There is a historical and causal connection between black socioeconomic progress and white violence starting at Reconstruction all the way through the Jim Crow and civil rights periods and even now through public policies, partisanship, and corporate interests. I wonder what Grandpa Jim, a proud and Southern striver, thought about these race riots when he heard about them. How did he keep his focus and maintain his economic freedom and autonomy in such perilous times. I wonder whether he was a politician or a great negotiator. Did he have trustworthy white friends in his local community? What type of inconveniences and indignities or treacheries did he have to endure 
to protect his family, property, and enterprise. How can we justify the killing of innocent people, let alone people who are not associated with an accusation or a confession of a crime? How can we justify burning another person alive or murdering someone in cold blood or bludgeoning someone to the point of death or destroying someone else's property and not be held accountable? Then afterwards, go home to your family, church services, political or elected office, and regular daily life like nothing ever happened for generations. This depraved indifference to the value of black life has flown under the radar of proper political consideration. The stench of blood that reeks through the centuries of American history due to American barbarity has not been solved through piecemeal race-neutral civil rights legislation, political correctness, colorblindness, and religious veneers. At the heart of America's sinful soul is the love of money and the treacherous pursuit of capital at all costs. America is never sorry for its sins. It's only sorry when its sins are exposed and is sure to do only the bare minimum in order to leave its idolatry intact. Before I end this episode, I'd like to share a more recent story of economic violence that happened to me just a few years ago. Back in 2016, when I was in the market for my first home, I was referred to a specific bank by a good friend and lawyer colleague of mine who happens to be white. He used this particular bank to purchase his first home under the bank's Young Professional Purchase Program. After being contacted for at least three weeks by this one banker named Ryan, who was assigned to my account, I decided to take the first step and pre-qualify for the loan. After I pre-qualified for the loan, I was approved and started the underwriting process soon after finding the house I wanted. The underwriting process is where the lending bank performs a very thorough audit of the borrower's financial profile. After comparing the bank's portfolio product with the federal government's mortgage product, I concluded the federal government had a comparatively better product than the bank, so I contacted Ryan to inform him that I decided against the bank's portfolio adjustable rate mortgage product and would opt for the government's 30-year fixed rate mortgage. Ryan responded immediately by trying to talk me out of choosing the fixed rate mortgage product and when I didn't change my mind, he stopped processing my loan application which he knew would cause me to breach my purchase agreement with the seller. Ryan was angry because my decision to change loan products lowered his commission payout. So he deliberately stalled my application so the seller would rescind the offer to sell and I would have to start the bidding process again from square one with a lower credit score. Upon realizing that I was being stonewalled, I called around within the bank to publicize what Ryan was doing. After several rounds of calls and emails, I was connected with Ryan's loan processing team who took over my application and began working on my loan application in earnest. 
On the day my purchase agreement expired, I reached out to the seller's agent directly, bypassing my incompetent agent, and went into a verbal extension agreement with the seller to keep the deal on the table until my bank completed the loan approval. I satisfied every document request to the letter for three weeks. With the help of my Heavenly Father and the power of the Holy Spirit, I closed on my home despite being over 45 days in breach of my purchase agreement, which is unheard of in California's cutthroat market. What God has for you is for you and nobody else. Romans 8.28 says that all things work together for the good of them who love the Lord and to the called according to his purpose. I want to encourage every person who has been a victim of physical and emotional violence, racial, gender, and economic discrimination that nothing is impossible when you have God in your heart because God is greater and more powerful than any contract, any corporation, any law, any policy, political party, position, or president. I serve the supervisor of the universe, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who will avenge every act of violence that has been done against his people. I declare and decree right now the spirit of liberation, freedom, and forgiveness be released over the marginalized and oppressed people of the United States and the world. Satan, we bind your treacherous and evil agenda up right now. You will take your hands off of God's people, and I pronounce death and destruction to every spirit of greed, violence, manipulation, trickery, jealousy, and exploitation lurking in the hearts and minds of the American people. And I pronounce words of clarity, justice, equity, and civility over America. In the mighty name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. History, despite its wrenching pain, cannot be unlived. But if faced with courage, need not be lived again. Maya Angelou. Thanks for joining this episode of Left on Red, thought-provoking commentary by Trevor Cooper. I hope you were enlightened, challenged, and even inspired. If you would like to connect with me on social media, then please find me on Facebook at Trevor A. Cooper, on Instagram at Mr. Trevor, M-I-S-T-E-R-T-R-E-V-O-R. To find out more about the ministry, please go to www.impactfellowshipchurch.org. Until next week, be well, be wise, and be nice. God bless.